US elections, Germany's Indo Pacific strategy, and the social media battle in the Azerbaijan Armenia conflict. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss Germany's Indo Pacific strategy. We want to considerably strengthen our political and economic relationships with this region. And the battle on social media to shape the narrative around the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict. Um, Because one of the difficult things about the way in which Twitter activity accompanies modern day conflicts is that a lot of the evidence is really rapidly lost. We start this week with a conversation between Brendan Nicholson and Anastasia Kapetis about the upcoming US elections and the chances of President Trump being re-elected. Hello, Anastasia. We've seen over recent months polls showing a gap between Trump and Biden, with uh, Biden a significant amount ahead. But since the debate and, and perhaps since Trump's extremely aggressive, antagonistic uh, approach to the debate, we've seen a significant slump in his numbers. You know, can Donald Trump reverse that and what does he need to do? Well, Brendan, it's a little bit hard from isolation. Um, that's one thing uh, that he's going to be battling with. I think it's not just the debate. If you look at the last two weeks for Trump, it's been disastrous. He had the New York Times story about his tax returns, basically showing that he's paid less tax uh, than almost every single American um, in the last, uh, you know, in the last decade. Also kind of showing that, you know, he's probably not a great businessman. Um, If you're only paying $750 of tax per year, uh, your businesses are making enormous losses. The third thing that came up in the tax story was that, he had um, uh, 450 million US uh, in uh, loans coming due next year to various undisclosed uh, people. Deutsche Bank was in there. Deutsche Bank has also been in the news for washing a whole bunch of Russian money consistently over the last 20 years. That story was, was bad. The debate, of course, his performance was widely panned. And then, of course, there was the coronavirus uh, diagnosis <laughs> last week. So, with all of that, you know, the chaos surrounding Trump is so extreme. I think the fatigue in the American electorate is so extreme. It's difficult to know how he can win. Is it possible, like his strategy, obviously, with the virus is to be the tough guy? Who, and, and his pronouncements that, you know, Corona is not such not such a big deal at all. You can shrug it off. Well, if you're the president, you get a special cocktail of the latest drugs and all the best medical help. Maybe you can, but 210,000 or something or other Americans are dead and a lot more have the illness and may suffer after effects. Um, What's his strategy and, and can he get away with it? So I think there's a couple of very interesting points here. One is the strategy, it's not particularly a strategy, but it's part of Trumpian ideology. It's part of his uh, ideology of hierarchy, of strength, of never taking a step backwards, um, that sickness is only for losers and weakness uh, and people who are very weak. And by sort of pushing through the tape on the virus, he's shown that he's an ubermet. He's had surrogates out there this week saying that he has God-level genetics. Um, you know, for example, uh, this is all about burnishing the mythology of Trump as Superman. And this is the kind of thing that his supporters love, kind of the key to the cult of Trump. 
So it's not particularly a strategy, but doubling down again on Trump as strong man. But the problem for Trump is that he's losing seniors. Now, this is a group that came out so strongly for Trump in 2016, and now he's losing them to Biden by you know roughly a 15-point margin. But for a long time, it appeared that he had such a hold on what we keep hearing described as his base yes. that he could destroy a busload of orphans and it wouldn't have shaken anybody's support for him once they were rusted on. What's changed there? Absolutely. So the original Trump strategy is essentially winning with the base, not convincing anybody or putting together a broader coalition for Republicans. Is really about uh, the white nationalist base of the Republican Party. So, um, and that's something that his then Svengali Stephen Bannon described as, you know, this is the Bannon line. So Trump needed to maintain over 90% of support amongst Republicans to win with the base. So if he had that, didn't need anybody else. So the Bannon line is 90. Trump's numbers this week have dropped down to the mid-80s. So he's, he's below the Bannon line with the Republicans as well. That's going to have his campaign sweating. Now, in the, the last time around, Hillary Clinton's people were reasonably confident that they were well ahead. The polls showed them comfortably ahead, though not, not there was no guarantees. And then came the announcement from the FBI that uh, they had reopened or have, were having a fresh look at uh, new evidence that had come up in the whole email saga. Yeah. Hillary's support just took a big dive at the last minute. Some days, several days before the, uh, the poll, the FBI came out and said, no, we've looked at all of this stuff. There's nothing new there, nothing to see here. Hillary's fine. She's innocent. No problem. But it wasn't enough. Now, is there likely to be a moment like that between now and polling day? So I think one of the things that's been obvious is that the Trump campaign has tried to manufacture that October surprise. So that was behind Giuliani's visit two months ago to uh, or more ago to Ukraine to try and reheat the conspiracy around Hunter Biden and his uh, involvement in a Ukrainian oil company that um, Giuliani has said was corrupt. It's also uh, behind Trump's effort this week to reheat Hillary's emails, uh, his contention that Obama illegally um, spied on his campaign in 2016 and his direction to, to, to Bill Barr, the Attorney General, a few months ago to investigate the FBI and other intelligence agencies who were surveilling the Trump campaign partly because uh, his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, at the time was hanging out with a Russian agent. Right. There's been a... A concern, I think, in many countries, including Australia, among strategists, commentators, that, and presumably among people in our government, that if the result is, is quite narrow and if there is manipulation of the Supreme Court, that uh, Donald Trump might actually refuse to stand down. You could see months of chaos in the United States. You, you could, we've already had armed militia groups turning up at, at demonstrations and, and a sort of feeling that this worst-case scenario could occur. Could we be saved from that if there is a significant landslide against Trump that makes it just too hard for him to challenge it? I think a landslide would inoculate the US uh, against all of that kind of post-election chaos. 
Having said that, I still think Republicans will challenge ballots uh, in battleground states. Yeah. I think it's something that, they, that their supporters expect them to do. Uh, there has been such a build-up from Trump uh, and his surrogates about the illegality that's you know alleged. They allege uh, that this election is going to be full of fraud, uh, and that the only way that that Biden can win is is by fraud. Um, so they've set this huge expectation and framing uh, that the election will be illegitimate. So even if uh, Biden, you know, there's a big blue wave on the day, that you'll still have some of that. But it'll be hard to cut through. Um, it'll be hard to really challenge those results. We're a very long way from the United States and Australia, but the you know one of our main, well, one of our main national newspapers, the Australian, owned by Rupert Murdoch, has very solidly in recent last couple of months backed Trump. Now, quite tellingly, yesterday they ran a significant story saying that uh, Donald Trump was on track to lose by a landslide. Do you think there's been a change of heart somewhere? <laughs> well, a couple of months ago, I think now, um, Rupert Murdoch was reported in Vanity Fair saying that he thought Trump would lose. It hasn't really shown, you know, the, the view of, if, if that is, is Murdoch's view, hasn't really shown through. For example, on Fox, it's not like they've pulled support for the president. But when outlets that, that have usually been real, very, real boosters of Trump begin to see the writing of the wall, um, then uh, that's significant. Anastasia, during the last election, we saw a, a very significant role, and it caught a lot of people by surprise, played by social media, Facebook and, and others. There was a lot of concern about manipulation of the information flowing out of uh, a whole range of entities. Do you think much has changed now, or what's, what's going to be done about that? Yes, well, it's been a, a really confusing debate. Um, the news today is that Facebook has had its antitrust suit filed against it by the US government. Difficult to know how that's going to play out in the in the you know the pre-election maelstrom. They also agreed last week to take down QAnon Facebook pages. Private and public QAnon pages has been a key vector for the spread of this particular. Uh, internet cult. Um, so they've agreed to do that. They agreed to do that in response to a, a, a pressure group that's been set up by a number of NGOs, privacy activists, journalists, uh, you know, people like Treshana Zhubhov who wrote um, Surveillance Capitalism. They've set up a group that is, they've called themselves the Alternative uh, Facebook Oversight Group. And they're essentially um, putting demands to Facebook to try and get them to take down disinformation, egregious disinformation before this election. And QAnon uh, was one of their demands, which, which Facebook kind of acquiesced to. But the news today is also that Facebook has tried to deplatform that group's website. So obviously there's going to be a lot of toying and froing. Um, this alternative oversight group has got a huge profile and lots of media reporting. So it's going to be difficult for Facebook <laughs> to get them to get them off the air. And even the attempt by Facebook to do this has generated so much negative uh, publicity for the platform um, that it looks like a bit of an own goal from Facebook today. One thing that has been a source of constant controversy is does the kind of micro-targeting done by Facebook Analytica um, uh, in the 2016 election, allegedly for Brexit and the Trump campaigns, does it work? Does it swing elections? Interesting studies, for example, from um, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government uh, most recently looking at the spread of disinformation on COVID uh, posits that 
disinformation is uh, spread most of all by mainstream news media outlets rather than rogue groups on the internet um, you know, using Facebook as a vector. Facebook still plays a huge part here because, of course, it amplifies traditional news sources. So that's something for Facebook to consider, its relationship with traditional news sources on disinformation as well. I think that will be something that, that Facebook will struggle with um, going forward. Anastasia, on the, uh, on the issue of the influence, the comparative influence of social media and the mainstream media, it does appear that... Social media has a very, very wide reach, but its impact is greater if the issues it raises and, and the themes that it puts out are actually embraced by the mainstream media. Do you think that's a factor? Yeah, so there's, um, for a lot of communication uh, academics and theorists, um, for example, one um, particularly influential theory is the theory around echo chambers. So this is where um, mainstream news outlets, and, and just to take an example, Fox uh, acts in a kind of symbiosis uh, with smaller, uh, uh, if you like, uh, news slash propaganda outfits like you know, Infowars or Breitbart, um, and they create essentially a, a news ecosystem that then bounces around private Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups, etc., etc. And this is how disinformation and conspiracism gets circulated around, you know, a, a pretty a relatively closed ecosystem. So that's that's one theory of how this works. Anastasia, thanks for that. Thanks, Brendan. Always a pleasure. Now, Dr. Huang Tu is joined by Miss Petra Sigmund. Director General for East Asia, Southeast Asia and the Pacific at the German Federal Foreign Office. They discussed Germany's recently launched Indo-Pacific strategy. The German government adopted new policy guidelines on the Indo-Pacific, making Germany only the second European country after France to have a blueprint to engage with the region called Indo-Pacific. Germany also by that joined a handful of um, important countries, namely Japan, US, India, and of course, Australia, and some institutions like the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to adopt the Indo-Pacific concept. I'm joined today by Ms. Petra Sigmund, Director General of East Asia, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific in the Federal Foreign Office of Germany, and one of the key persons behind the strategy to talk about the main aspect of, of the document. Thank you for joining us, Petra. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the main content. The document entitled Policy Guideline is obviously a very comprehensive document with over 70 pages that lists interests, principles and initiatives that Germany has in the region. And of course, it talks about important stuff like rule of law, trade, multilateralism, climate change and so on. But Petra, if you uh, would like um, some of our listeners in Australia in particular to have some key takeaways from the document and uh, remember how Germany is making an active contribution in shaping the international in the region in particular, what would that be? Well, we've adopted these guidelines uh, in order to tell the region that the Indo-Pacific region as a whole is becoming more and more important for Germany and for the European Union. And on the basis of this uh, comprehensive policy framework, we want to considerably strengthen our political and economic relationships 
with this region. We also want to broaden the scope of where we cooperate in the region, especially uh, joining up with those who want to advance, safeguard further the rules-based international order in the Indo-Pacific. We've uh, seen in the past couple of years that a number of uh, players in the Indo-Pacific region have themselves adopted Indo-Pacific strategies. Australia was one of them, the United States, of course, Japan, India, ASEAN have uh, um, mm-hmm. promulgated their strategies. And mm-hmm. our guidelines are also our response to that and are, are the attempt to look for more areas of cooperation uh, with those partners in the Indo-Pacific. I remember um, that we had an opportunity to talk back in March 2019, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, but I remember the, the certain consideration and hesitance, if not even reluctance, towards STEM back then, the, towards the term Indo-Pacific. And, uh, and I understand there has been a lot of domestic considerations in Germany um, about the concept about the changing strategic environment. But I wonder if you could share with us what has changed since then? How has Germany's view shifted um, uh, about the region? And does it have to do much with China? Um, If so, how much? Because uh, Germany on its own has also gone through a phase of so-called reckoning and transforming how it sees China from predominantly as an economic actor to increasingly as you know, seeing and recognizing uh, China's strategic ambitions. Um, is this reflected in the Indo-Pacific Guideline uh, Policy document? Yes, you could say so. First of all, you asked um, how we came about this strategy. We, you've seen a certain reluctance on our side to come up with our own Indo-Pacific strategy. We've long been thinking about this. How can we formulate a policy that, that is, is not deepening this bipolarity that is that we're already seeing in the region can we come up with a strategy that makes clear that we want to cooperate uh, with china in the region we said yes we can be done uh, we just need to be clear about our interests and principles and what what kind of an order we want to see in the indo-pacific region so our strategy uh, as we've laid it out it explicitly includes China, Um, uh, but the overall thrust of the strategy, if you wish, is that we've, we've seen in German politics especially that we've very much focused on our relationship with China. So we've been very concentrated on furthering and advancing this relationship, and we haven't not probably not done enough to invest in the relationship with other partners, other important partners in the region. But this has uh, gradually changed because we realize that when we today, we look for a political partnership on a number of issues that are mentioned in the document, like, for instance, advancing the rules-based international order, fighting climate change, advancing our economic relationships, then we look to other partners in Asia as well. We have a very active free trade policy in the framework of the European Union that is addressed to basically the whole of ASEAN, uh, uh, Japan and Korea. We've already aged and engaged into free trade relationships with India is one of the partners we're seeking to draw closer to the European Union. Australia and New Zealand, we are in negotiations uh, with in, in order to increase trade. So we're following, especially on the 
on the economic front an active diversification policy that tries to increase our economic partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region. But um, it's not just about economics. Uh, also, as I said, when, we, when we're trying to find political partners, for instance, in the framework of this alliance for multilateralism that our foreign minister is very much engaged in, where do we find these partners today? We find them in Australia, in Japan, in India, in Singapore, in many of the Asian countries we find a willingness to engage multilaterally with us on uh, common issues of concern. So this has brought about this shift in policy, more looking towards like-minded that we find everywhere in Asia. Now the policy guidelines, if you wish, are a consequence of that, that we see the opportunities, the massive opportunities in um, forging closer relations politically and economically with the partners in the whole of Asia. It's important that you mentioned that the, the German uh, policy guideline is, is inclusive. It's something that probably the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific would resonate with. Um, especially that a lot of um, criticism of or shortcoming of other Indo-Pacific strategies and particularly coming from the Trump administration is too much attention on competition uh, with China and in fact too much on China and too little on the rest of, um, of Asia and it's important that Germany has been able to identify areas of cooperation while recognizing that China is um, very strategically ambitious and uh, in to some extent to, in some uh, aspect violating international law as well. Uh, I think what is very interesting from the policy guideline is that it says the future is neither unipolar um, nor bipolar and it very much advocates for multilateralism and that's where the Association of Southeast Asian Nations uh, is um, coming into the picture and there's an extensive section um, in the policy guidelines about Southeast Asia and about um, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So I wonder, uh, Petra, uh, what is in your view the role that ASEAN can play given knowingly its its realistic limitations and which uh, where would uh, Germany would like to work even more closely with ASEAN than it is at the moment. As European Union, we are a multilaterally organized um, uh, group of countries, and we've long looked um, with a lot of interest and sympathy towards ASEAN, which is also multilaterally organized and is living the principle of, of, of multilateralism uh, seeking for compromise, uh, um, putting um, the uh, the interests of all together um, before the interests of a particular country. That's the spirit of multilateralism. We are in the European Union, 530 million, ASEAN is 600 million. We've realized that ASEAN is not entirely following the path that the European Union has engaged on. ASEAN is more of a economic union, uh, not so much a political union, plus the diversities between the ASEAN countries and the distances are much bigger than uh, for the European Union. But still with all the differences, we feel that the overall attempt uh, of working together multilaterally, forming a regional platform uh, also for trade, um, is a policy that we share.
And we see uh, in ASEAN many principles at work, especially also when it comes to upholding the safety and stability, the maritime safety and stability and freedom, when it comes to upholding open trade uh, within the region. We see principles at work that we can work with as a European Union very well. So we have uh, in the policy guidelines, we've um, spelled out a number of policy areas that we think we can work with ASEAN on. That is, for instance, um, fighting climate change. That is also safeguarding stability in the South China Sea. But that is uh, also advancing our trade relationship, working to promote multilateralism. We see a lot of areas, really, where we can work together um, more closely. But I wanted to come back to um, what you said in the beginning about um, uh, working with China. Our European strategic outlook on China that uh, the EU came up with uh, spring last year has gotten a lot of um, uh, attention because we labeled uh, China uh, as a partner, as a competitor, and as a systemic rival to the European Union. That already marked a policy shift uh, in the EU's um, uh, views and policies vis-a-vis China. But it's important to say that we do see China as a partner, not just as a competitor and a systemic rival. And the partnership, when we cite um, areas of partnership, there is, of course, economic partnership that we are seeking with uh, China, but there is especially the area of answering to global challenges. Uh, and there, if you look at, for instance, climate policy, China has made a very positive contribution to climate policy in its uh, speech at the United Nations General uh, Assembly um, last week, uh, when it actually said it will peak its CO2 emissions before 2030 and will become carbon neutral before 2060. That is a very important contribution that is uh, hopefully going to create more dynamics also uh, for the success of COP26. And it's a good example of where we and how we can cooperate with China in the region and also globally. That's a very important point. Um, And I I was pleased to see that the policy guideline was very clear and very uh, upfront in the beginning about climate change and protecting our planet, including uh, about issues such as energy cooperation as well. That's uh, all the time we've got, but thank you for taking your time to uh, speak to us about the policy guideline in the Pacific. And we invite all our listeners to read uh, the whole whole policy document. very essential. So thank you again, Petra, for joining us today. Thank you. We close this week with a conversation between Elise Thomas and Aspie intern Albert Zhang. They discuss their recent report, Snapshot of a Shadow War, which looks at the social media elements of the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict. Uh, so Albert, we've spent the last sort of week and a half looking at some of the uh, Twitter activity connected to the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Um, what have we seen? Well, conflict sort of started on the 27th of September <clears throat> and around the same time we noticed a big sort of spike or surge in tweeting activity around hashtags which are um, associated with both um, combatants. 
So what was interesting is that over those two days, on the 27th, 28th, and the 29th, um, we collected about 200,000 tweets associated with hashtags, majority of which... Which were the hashtags? So the hashtags were um, stop uh, Armenian aggression, mm-hmm. as well as the, the counterpart, stop uh, Azerbaijani aggression as well. And there was a lot of mentions of NK peace. Standing for Nagorno-Karabakh peace, yes, which exactly. is the disputed area between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Yep, no, exactly. Um, as well as just a lot of people uh, tweeting about Azerbaijan and Armenia, fighting over those two different hashtags to push their own view or their interpretation of what the conflict was about, really. So looking at these tweets, um, what was particularly interesting um, and what was what led to us suspecting some sort of suspicious activity was basically a lot of these accounts were created recently over the 27th, 28th. In fact, I think it was over 7,000 accounts were created within those two days. Um, so that raises alarms about um, who's creating these accounts. From our analysis, we suspect a lot of it is on the pro-Armenian side, um, but there's definitely accounts associated with the Azerbaijani side as well, mm. which is particularly interesting because um, I think we mentioned in the report that the Azerbaijan government has banned or blocked social media use over this conflict, really. Yeah, and so I, I think the, the important thing to emphasise about this report that we will be putting out um, is that it's not intended to be a comprehensive overview of all of the disinformation or misinformation. Um, it's not associated with this conflict because there's an enormous amount of it and it's taking place across multiple platforms and in multiple languages. Um, so I think what we wanted to achieve with this report is just to get a snapshot of the activity in time um, because one of the difficult things about the way in which Twitter activity accompanies modern-day conflicts is that a lot of the evidence is really rapidly lost. So, for example, when I was looking at looking at these hashtags on the 27th, I could see it disappearing before my eyes. So I could see accounts disappearing, tweets disappearing as Twitter's content moderators were taking that content down, uh, which is what that you, you'd want them to do. It's the responsible thing to do. But from um, a researcher's perspective and also from a historian's perspective, this is an element of the conflict. Um, and if you don't capture it at that point in time, it will be lost. Um, and then we, we just won't know necessarily that this activity accompanied the conflict, even though um, and even though it's being taken down fairly quickly, like Twitter was pretty relatively on this comparatively, it's still seen by people. It still makes a difference, particularly if they get those hashtags trending. Um, so the reason that actually that I started looking at as I was sort of, you know, just browsing my personal Twitter and I started seeing these these pro-Armenian hashtags trending first and then the Azerbaijanis, uh, I guess, as the Azerbaijani side reacted. Um, to the the Armenian side getting those hashtags trending. And so, yeah, so the goal of this um, is really to to provide a snapshot in time of specific elements of the battle over that information narrative, which is accompanying this incredibly contentious and complicated conflict. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it's really interesting the the complementation of the actual kinetic conflict with this information operation that's occurring in the social media space to, well, basically... um, I think in our report we talk about the the least Armenians are trying to get US viewers um, to attract sort of international support for their conflict because mm-hmm. it seems I mean we don't we don't experts in conflict itself it seems that they're not going to resolve between those two different countries so <clears throat> they're trying to pull in different um, parties to get involved hopefully to intervene in this conflict. So so what we saw was actually um, an interesting dynamic between the Azerbaijani accounts the Pakistan the, uh, a group of sort of Pakistani linked accounts and a group of Turkish linked accounts which. Mm-hmm calls back to some activity that we saw last year. Um, So what happened last year is we saw across a number of incidents, so during Turkey's Operation Peace Spring, which was their incursion into northern Syria against the Kurds, um, we saw a lot of Pakistani, like there was a huge information operation which accompanied that from the Turkish side.
side, but there was also a lot of support from Pakistani accounts for that operation. And they used um, a lot of hashtags like Turkey is not alone. Um, we saw the same thing through 2019 over the Kashmir clashes between India and Pakistan. Um, we saw Turkish linked accounts using Pakistan is not alone. Um, and so this sort of alliance was building up between the, I guess, the Twitter verses of of both countries. And I use the term Twitter versus because it's really hard to characterize exactly what it is. Um, some of these are clearly authentic accounts. Some of them I suspect are people who are being like human beings who are being paid. And some of them are clearly automated accounts. Um, it's hard to find a single term that covers all of that. So I'm just going to call it a Twitter verse. Mm. We saw this alliance building up between the Twitter verses of these two countries in the same way that we've seen an alliance building up between, like it reflects the geopolitical alliances between Turkey and Pakistan. Um, and what we've seen in this conflict is the explosion of the hashtag Azerbaijan is not alone, which was barely used sort of prior to the last month or so. Um, and, and Albert, I think you saw a really interesting spike in that hashtag, which is obviously a spin on those earlier hashtags of Turkey is not alone, mm. Pakistan is not alone. Yeah. So through this report, we looked, we, I, did, I did more of a quantitative analysis looking at how those two different hashtags, Azerbaijan is not alone, um, as well as Turkey is not alone. And you looked at how they trended and they sort of displayed a similar, uh, well, there was a correlation between the two different trends. Um, not saying that one hashtag caused the other hashtag to, to sort of trend itself, but there was a, a third f- factor that was dependent for both behaviours in how the hashtag was trending. And, and they was, were often tweeted together as they well. They were often yeah. tweeted together as well, but there appeared to be like a three-hour lag between particular spikes in usage mm. of the two different hashtags. So that was interesting, just analysing that type of behaviour to see if we can identify uh, like a common group of uh, accounts. And as well as this report, was like a test run in methodology as well to look at, see how we could measure the similarity between hashtags. Um, and so there's a, a heat map, which is pretty to look at at the end, but might require a bit of explanation. And basically the darker coloured tiles represent um, more correlated or similar hashtags that behave similarly. Whereas the yellow tiles are very independent and um, not related hashtags. It is very pretty. And yeah. you, I, I did require the explanation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I, think, I think the interesting, um, I think an important thing to note is that these spikes and hashtags could be authentic mm. in that like, you know, like sometimes things do go viral very quickly. Um, but when you see the combination of these uh, really rapid spikes in hashtags combined with really rapid account creation, that does start to look extremely suspicious. Um, and the fact that, like, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I could, like, actually see Twitter taking these accounts down suggests that Twitter themselves were also suspicious of these accounts and thought that they were dodgy. Mm. Um, we saw a couple of other interesting things around um, the targeting of particular US celebrities. Yes, um, right, yeah. So Kim Kardashian um, was was targeted significantly because she has, you know, family mm. ties to Armenia, um, as were, were other members of the Kardashian family and Kanye West. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, the the US rapper Cardi B, um, mm-hmm. I think, tweeted something in support of Armenia and then beca- uh, sort of came under fire from the Azerbaijani side. Uh, maybe that's the wrong metaphor to use in this context. Came under a lot of tweets from the <laughs> Azerbaijani side uh, with the hashtag Cardi B is a terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, it's, it's interesting to see um, the role of celebrity and the way in which this information battle is trying to co-opt the enormous platform that these celebrities have in support of geopolitical interests is is very interesting. Hmm. And that's combined with the fact that um, we noticed that high-profile media outlets were also targeted. The BBC account saw an unusual spike in the number of accounts replying to their articles that were reporting on the conflict in the region. And looking at some of the accounts which were replying to these um, articles also 
have a similar pattern in terms of they were created recently on the 27th, 28th of September as well. So, And they were also <clears throat> using the same text um, across different articles on both sides of the, in terms of the pro-Armenian and pro-Abhijani side as well. Both um, sort of suspicious accounts were tweeting um, or replying to these articles on, I think, like BBC Media, um, Time Magazine, as well as other um, sort of high-profile media outlets, basically. So trying to get that international audience to read um, <clears throat> their perspective on the conflict. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think also the multilingual element, we, we've only really looked at the English mm. um, language content um, in here because neither of us speak Armenian or Azeri. But I, I think that multilingual element is super interesting. And one of the examples in the report is a, a group of recently created accounts which were essentially tweeting out um, little little fragments in a, in a range of languages, um, which seem to be, a lot of which seem to be sourced from Armenian government sources. Um, you know, for example, taking like a, the, the headline of a press release from the Ministry of Defence or whatever and translating it into um, German, Spanish, Italian, um, Portuguese um, and, and tweet and these, you know, questionable accounts um, all tweeting them out in a sort of a, what seemed like quite a coordinated way um, was very interesting. I think, you know, we had a short timeline to do this report, um, but I'm happy with what we sort of produced. Hopefully this report will be a starting point for further analysis in the future for our researchers, or maybe we can even look into it later. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I so I found this report really interesting to do. Um, but I also think for me that the bigger point is that um, that, that issue of like the, the degrading of the evidence, that if you don't do this at the time, you will lose it. Um, and maybe we need to think about sort of ways that we can uh, support Twitter in doing their doing their responsible um, content moderation in, in that this does need to be taken down, um, but also think about sort of how we can capture that evidence because it, it is significant. Um, you know, the, the, the role of the international community is shaped by the international community's perceptions of what's happening, and that's why they put all this effort into doing these things. Um, and if we are not capturing that evidence, we won't fully understand what's happening. Thanks for chatting, Lise. For those who are listening, you can read more about our report on the ASPI website. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Thanks for listening.